Good morning, everyone. My name is Madeline, and yeah, I have the joy of reading from God's Word this morning. You can follow along in your Bibles, on your phones, or on the screen behind me. So we're reading today from the books of Psalms and Matthew. Our Psalms reading is chapter 119, verses 1 to 8, and then 105 to 112. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Then we will skip to verses 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your ways. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Next, we will go over to the book of Matthew, reading from chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I hate the way you look at me and the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate it so much it makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse, when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact you didn't call. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. Good morning. Great to be with you again. Some of you may recognise that poem from the 1999 film 10 Things I Hate About You with Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles. It's a poem that expresses the author's feelings for someone who, by all accounts, they should hate. Someone who can make them feel bad. You can make them cry. Who wears big dumb combat boots? And yet it turns out that in truth the author of the poem doesn't hate that person. 
but instead loves them. The psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 119, is a very long poem uh, that speaks about God's law. And unlike the poem I just read, it doesn't express hatred uh, for the law, although perhaps sometimes we might think it should. Often when we think of law, particularly biblical law, uh, there's often this accompanying feeling of oppression, of uh, the idea of the law being a killjoy, of taking away our fun. I'm sure you've heard those ideas before. But the author of the psalm doesn't see things that way. For the author, God's law doesn't kill joy, it brings joy. It brings hope, it brings life. Rather than the law being something to be avoided or followed out of fear uh, because otherwise you might be punished, the psalm expresses the law as something to be embraced, something to rejoice in. And today we'll, we'll have a look and see if we can find out where that joy in the law comes from. Now, probably the most well-known feature, and it's already been mentioned this morning, the most well-known feature of the psalm is its length. At 176 verses, it's the longest uh, psalm in the in book of Psalms, and it's the longest chapter in the Bible. Which and, and its focus is God's law, which may seem a little bit surprising, considering that just two psalms earlier, in Psalm 117, we have the shortest uh, chapter in the Bible at two verses, which focuses on God's love. If word count correlates to importance, maybe the the psalmist had a different idea of what's important than we might have. The next key feature of Psalm 119 is, and one that's not really apparent when we read it in our English Bibles, it's written as a huge acrostic. So there's 22 stanzas in in, in in the psalm. Each stanza has eight verses and within each stanza each of the eight verses starts with the same letter in Hebrew. And so you've got 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 stanzas. And so if you look at your English Bibles, you may see before each block a little Hebrew letter. Now when I suggested that I might write a sermon on this psalm, someone, perhaps unwisely, suggested that I should uh, frame my sermon likewise as an acrostic. Apprehensively, I thought I might give it a go. Articulately, I put my mind to it. And to start with, it was easy. And so I began. But soon my confidence turned to trepidation because I knew danger was approaching. Barriers to my language skills would soon arise. Bearing down on my consciousness was the approach of challenges. Challenges raised by the English language itself. Certain letters that I knew would be difficult to deal with. Cause? Because there ain't many letters that start with Q, X or Z. I don't know how many of you ever tried to write an acrostic of a decent length, but the point of that silly exercise was to demonstrate the effort the psalmist must have gone to into writing this psalm. And perhaps due to the limitations that the acrostic uh, format forces onto the writer, we find that Psalm 119 isn't the sort of psalm that starts with an idea and develops it gradually throughout the psalm. Instead, it, it weaves ideas, a number of themes and ideas throughout, uh, throughout the psalm. So today we'll look at some of those key themes and ideas. It does mean we'll be jumping around in the psalm a bit, so if you get the chance, I do encourage you to read the psalm from beginning to end. It's not actually that long once you get into it, and it is well worth the effort. 
The psalm begins with a general call to faithfulness in the first three verses. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. Now, for any of you who have spent much time in the Psalms, you may, they may sound a little bit familiar because they echo the words of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that the sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Then for the rest of the psalm, the author switches to what is best described as a prayer, a poem from the author to God. And there's three main ideas in the psalm that I'd like to bring out today. And in the spirit of our acrostic, they all begin with the same letter. You could say today's sermon is brought to you by the letter L. So the three ideas are liberty, light and life. First idea I want to look at is that God's law brings liberty. Now most people would say today that liberty or freedom comes when we're released from restrictions. The less laws, the better. We should just be able to do what we want. That's true freedom. But look at verse 45. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Now a precept is essentially a command, uh, but it refers more to the nitty-gritty details of the law rather than the big ideas. Because the psalmist has spent time seeking and soaking in the details of God's law, he says he can walk about in freedom. It's probably not the normal way we think about freedom. But for those living in that time period when the psalms were written, everyone had gods that they worshipped. Israel was supposed to worship Yahweh, although they didn't always do a good job of that. Uh, But other nations worshipped Baal or Ashtoreth or Dagon or some other deity. Part of the problem with these gods is that they were often seen as fickle. You never knew when they might turn up and you never really knew how to please them. You weren't sure whether your actions would bring the gods blessing or whether you might end up being killed in battle or through a famine or some other disaster caused by the god being generally grumpy. But that's not the psalmist's experience. For him, God had revealed himself to his people through his law And so the psalmist knew what was required in order to stay right with God. In verse 9 he says, How can a young person stay on the path to purity? By living according to your word. And so the law was a source of delight. He says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. It was through God's law that the the psalmist gained freedom, liberty that is found in God's commands, not in the release from them. Saul begs the question then, which of the laws of the Bible do we follow? Scholars have estimated there are about 613 laws in the Old Testament, so do we still follow all of them? None of them? The Ten Commandments? Just the ones about morality? There are, of course, a number of fairly obvious ones we should follow, do not kill, do not steal, and so on. And then there are a whole bunch of laws that are more ritualistic in nature, to do with sacrifices and eating certain foods and observing certain festivals. They don't really seem relevant to us because we're not living in the ancient Near East and our culture isn't that of the ancient Near East. But maybe that's part of the key. 
the laws we see in the Old Testament weren't given to Israel in a vacuum. They didn't just fall from heaven as something brand new that they'd never thought of before. All the laws given to Israel were based on the culture they were in. And many of the laws may have mirrored laws from other nations around them, but all of them were based on two ideas. What were those ideas? We saw them in our reading earlier from Matthew. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind and heart, and love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. God's plan for us is to live as his people, in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. So this then is probably how we should approach the commands in the Bible. We shouldn't look at God's law and decide which of the laws we should keep and which we should ignore. That's, it's asking the wrong questions. It's not the point. Instead, we should read all 613 commands as the way in which God provided Israel a way to be in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. And we should read them as a model of how God allows us to be in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. And it's through this idea that the psalmist is able to take delight and find liberty in God's law. So God's law brings liberty. That's the first point. The next next aspect is that God's law brings light. One of the most well-known verses we've heard a couple times this morning is verse 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I wonder how many of you here have a smartphone? Probably most of you, I'd expect. How many times have, have you or someone you're with had, had a question about an event or, or something and one of you's just whipped out your phone and had a quick search on Google and found the answer? Pretty common, yep. It's absolutely astounding how much information we have pretty much instant access to these days. And the general consensus seems to be that having access to so much information somehow makes us smarter and more intelligent and wiser. The reality, of course, is that there's a difference between access to knowledge and actually having knowledge. If I got on an aeroplane, I want to be pretty confident that the pilot actually knows how to fly the plane and doesn't just have access to that information. What's more, even having knowledge isn't a good indicator of intelligence. I'm sure we've all come across people who know a lot of things about a lot of stuff, but actually what they say just isn't worth listening to. If you haven't come across those people, just go on social media for a while. Not all social media is bad, don't get me wrong, but yeah, there's some fruit loops out there. But then even intelligence isn't a good indicator of wisdom. Someone once said that intelligence doesn't lead a person to find truth, Instead, it just enhances their ability to justify their own beliefs. In fact, according to a 2019 article from The Guardian, research shows that smart people are more susceptible to fake news and conspiracy theories. And I found that and I thought, yes, that's the point I want to make. Then I saw the date it was printed, and it was the 1st of April. I find myself pretty smart, and I thought, ah, okay, well, maybe that makes my point, actually. Richard Dawkins, in his book The Blind Watchmaker, said that biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. Now, Richard Dawkins is an atheist and doesn't believe in God. 
there's no doubt he's an intelligent guy and he knows a lot of stuff. But that doesn't lead to wisdom. In fact, the Bible calls him a fool. Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What does Psalm 119 tell us? Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. God's word gives us light to walk by. But more, it gives us insight for discernment, for wisdom. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Multiple times throughout the psalm, the author calls on God to give him understanding. Verse 34, give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Verse 73, give me understanding to learn your commands. Verse 125, I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. Verse 144, your statutes are always righteous. Give me understanding that I may live. 169, give me understanding according to your word. God's law brings wisdom, but it's not just an extension of knowledge or intelligence. It's not based on what we know. It's based on who we know. And it's not something that we get given once and that's it, just like passing an exam. But instead it's something that comes to us over time as we spend time in God's word. The word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. It's not a lamp that immediately lights up everything, our entire future laid out before us. But like Meredith's Woody, was a great example by the way, it's a, a light to see where we take our next step and the next and the next. It's, it's a light to walk by, to live by and to choose our path by. And the more time we spend in God's word, the brighter that lamp for our feet will be. Verse, verse 32, it says, I run in the path of your commands for you have broadened my understanding. Isn't that a beautiful picture? But as we spend time in God's word, he gives light to our path so we can walk. But as we spend more and more time in God's word, he gives us more and more light until we can run in the path of his commands, confident that he will guide our way. So God's law brings liberty and God's law brings light. The third L we'll look at is life. God's law brings life. Now the writer does two things in this psalm with the theme of life. First, he sees God's law as restorative and life-giving. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. On the other hand, the writer also asks God for life to enable him to keep the law. Verse 88, in your unfailing love, preserve my life that I may obey the statutes of your mouth. The phrase preserve my life occurs ten times in the psalm and the idea of God providing life for the purpose of obeying his word appears another five times. For the psalmist, God isn't some remote and hostile dictator who demands that his laws be carried out against the threat of punishment for failure. Instead, not only does life come from obeying God's word, but God himself provides the very life required to keep his commands. Yep, we're, we're required to obey God's commands, but it's God himself who provides the ability to do just that. Of course, we still live up to God's, we still fail to live up to God's standards. As I mentioned before, it's no different for the psalmist. He ends the psalm by saying, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. It's not that the psalmist says, if only I can be good enough, then God will accept me. 
If only I read my Bible every day. If only I pray more. If only I stop doing this or that. If only, if only. The psalmist is very aware of his failings, but he is totally reliant on God. He strayed like a lost sheep. Earlier we hear that same humility and reliance on God. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Fulfill your servant to your, your promise to your servant. Why? So that I'll be liked? So that I'll avoid punishment? No. The end goal of our obedience to God's word is not our salvation. We don't earn eternal life by being good. The end goal of our obedience to God's word is not our salvation, but God's glory. Now we said earlier that God's laws are part of the revelation of himself which he has given us through his word and he gave us the ultimate revelation of himself when he sent Jesus, his son, into the world. Not through our goodness, but through his life, death and resurrection, Jesus became the ultimate fulfilment of God's law, bringing us liberty from the bondage of sin and death, bringing us understanding and discernment as the light of the world which shines in the darkness and bringing us life, not just here and now, but eternal life in perfect relationship with God and with each other. And he didn't do this for our glory. He did it for his glory. So what do we make of all this? In Psalm 119, we hear the prayer of someone who delights in spending time in God's word, who finds freedom and wisdom and life springing from every page. And that freedom, wisdom and life come as we spend time in God's word. The Bible is, for the most part, something known as meditative literature. It's meant to be read and reread and mulled over and thought through and read again. It's the story that God has given, has given us to tell us who he is. Not just as a bunch of facts to give us knowledge about God, but through the help of the Holy Spirit to help us to know God. As a book left closed on the shelf, it does absolutely nothing. But by reading it, by meditating upon it, we allow God to speak liberty, light and life into us. Some of you may already have a regular Bible reading routine and that's fantastic. I really encourage you to keep going with that. For those who don't, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or you're still looking into this Jesus thing, I want to encourage you, read your Bible. About a year ago, I started setting aside some time every morning just to read a few chapters of the Bible. I started at the very beginning. They tell me it's a very good place to start and read from Genesis through to Revelation. And I started again and I'm almost at the end again. And it's worked, it's worked really well for me. It's become one of my favourite times of the day. Another friend of mine uh, prefers to jump around a bit more, grabbing a bit of Old Testament, a bit of New Testament. He's got a, a list of all the, the uh, books and chapters of the Bible and he marks off so he can mark his progress. It doesn't really matter how you do it. You can even download the, um, the audio version of the Bible and have the soothing tones of David Suchet read to you. If you find the Bible a bit complicated, and it is a big book, and it, it's complicated... Maybe take a browse through the videos and other material at somewhere like BibleProject.com. Um, their videos are a really good way of seeing how the books 
of the Bible fit together as a whole um, as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Because if what I've said is true, if the Bible really is God's way of revealing himself to us, it's the way that he's chosen to, to reveal himself to us, and if through scripture he's providing us a way to be in relationship with him and with each other, how can we just leave the Bible collecting dust on the shelf? I encourage you, read your Bible. That's the key point to take away today. Spend time in God's word. That's where we find true freedom, true wisdom and eternal life. That's where God reveals himself to us. And it's through spending time in God's word that we too may find absolute delight in God's word, in God's law. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the freedom, wisdom and life we find in your word. We thank you for the way you have chosen to make yourself known to us so that we can live in relationship with you and with each other. We especially thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who who lived, died and rose again as the ultimate fulfilment of your law. We ask that you will cause us to long to spend time in your word, entice us with freedom, draw us in with light and grant us life that we may know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.